Simon and Schuster Audio presents The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People Restoring the Character Ethic. This program is based on the best selling book of the same title by Dr. Stephen R. Covey and on his work as an internationally known leadership consultant. Dr. Covey is Vice Chairman of Franklin Covey Company, a global provider of leadership development and productivity products and services based in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's also author of the best-selling books, Principle-Centered Leadership, First Things First, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families, and Living the Seven Habits, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. In this program, you'll hear Dr. Covey at one of his seminars. First, he'll explain the basic ideas on which the seven habits of highly effective people are built. He'll make you aware of your paradigms, the subjective ways you see and understand the world. And he'll show you that many people need to make a paradigm shift to a new way of thinking based on natural laws that shape human happiness and effectiveness. Then, Dr. Covey will explain the seven habits with clear examples and personal anecdotes. You'll understand that ultimately what you are, your character and values, communicate more than what you say or do. And you'll learn specific techniques to help you make the seven habits of highly effective people work for you. The seven habits of highly effective people are so basic that they just don't apply to individuals like you. They also apply to marriages, families, and businesses. In fact, to private and public organizations of every kind. But before we get into the habits themselves, it's important for you to know that this is not a quick-fix program. It's not based on some technique or some instant kind of revolution. To acquire the seven habits, to internalize them, you have to be willing to do three things with the information in this program. Learn it, teach it, and then do it which means apply it to your life. Work very diligently to understand. Learn, in other words. Work with your mind to think deeply in sustained ways about this material. Two, teach it to other people. Shortly after you learn this material, teach it. By shortly, I mean within 24 to 48 hours. You simply will learn better when you teach. It also will give you a sense of commitment to the material, simply because you're making a statement when you teach this material. It socially commits you, and that's powerfully reinforcing to your own motivation to live the material, to live the principles, to cultivate the habits. One thing that happens when you agree to teach something is that you change your role. You no longer think of yourself as a student, but as a teacher. In your mind, you have a different role, a different picture of yourself. If you really want to significantly improve people's behavior, change people's pictures of their roles. I'd like to use a scientific term for a moment to describe what I'm presenting. It's called paradigm. A paradigm is kind of the way you see the world, the way you see the universe. The way you see your role is a paradigm. 
Now here's a chance for you to share a paradigm-shifting experience that Dr. Covey had. Work with your mind and empathize with this situation and see if you don't also experience a paradigm shift. It was a Sunday morning in New York. I was on a subway alone. It was a rather quiet morning. The subway was no more than perhaps a third filled. Very unlike, I'm sure, the raucous night before. People were just quietly sitting there and some were reading their newspapers. It was kind of a pleasant, quiet morning. Now empathize, project your consciousness into this scene. All of a sudden, a man and his children, a large group of children, got onto the subway. And they were so loud and so noisy, so raucous, that instantly the whole climate had changed. The man sat right next to me and did nothing about this whole situation. Everybody was yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. I mean, it was very disturbing. So I turned to him after a few minutes and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. And he was looking down, kind of lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation and said, Oh, I, I guess I should. Uh, we just came from the hospital and their, their mother just died about an hour ago. And I guess I don't know what to think and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Now, do you see that situation differently? I did instantly, as you do. Notice how free-flowing and spontaneous your attitudes of helpfulness and sympathy are. Notice how your behavior flows from that. I said, what can I do to help? See, I wanted to. Look how your attitude and your behavior are a function of your paradigm, of how you see the situation. It isn't what happens to us that affects our behavior. It's our interpretation of what happens to us. And if we can learn to get a better paradigm, get at a different level of thinking, we are on the road to significant improvement. Now that you're familiar with paradigms and paradigm shifting, let's define what a habit is. As Dr. Covey mentioned, the seven habits of highly effective people are based on principles, ideas that seem to make sense to most human beings, regardless of social conditioning. So a habit is a principle you internalize, particularly if it's a habit of effectiveness. For instance, in business, a principle would be to value the customer and to adapt your whole approach in business to the customer. That's a principle. If I've internalized that principle to where I know how to do that and I want to do it and I know what to do, that's a habit. So the habit is the overlapping of knowledge, skill, and attitude. Knowledge is what to do. Skill is how to do. Attitude is why to do. Or you could say 
want to do. See, I may know how to treat the customer with value to build that relationship. I may know what I should do, but not want to, because I may not feel like I'm treated that way. So it won't be a habit. In another case, I may know what to do to build my relationship with this teenager who's going through this terrific identity crisis and feels alienated from his parents, from the family. I may want to do it, know what to do, but not know how to do it. I don't have the skill. So if I lack the skill, it's not a habit. I might even have certain skill and knowledge, but not want to. A habit is the overlapping of what to do or knowledge, how to do or skill, and why to do, want to do, or attitude. Where they overlap, you'll see a habit. The seven habits of highly effective people are not a set of separate or piecemeal techniques. They can move you sequentially, progressively, on what Dr. Covey calls a continuum of maturity, from dependence to independence to interdependence. For example, when you were an infant, you were totally dependent on others to nurture and direct you. Then gradually, as you got older, you became more and more independent, until eventually you could take care of yourself. And as you continue to grow and mature, you become increasingly aware that all of nature and society is interdependent. In a similar way, the seven habits continue your growth and maturity along a continuum. Dependency is the attitude of you. You take care of me. You come through for me. You didn't come through. I blame you for these results. The attitude of independency is I. I can do it. I will. Self-reliance. Takes self-confidence to be self-reliant. The attitude or word symbol of interdependency is we. We can do it. We will do it. We'll cooperate. We'll accomplish this. Dependent people need others to get what they want. Independent people can get what they want through their own effort. Interdependent people require their own effort and the cooperation of others to get what they want. It doesn't take much thought, really, to realize how much more mature interdependency is than independency. Think of what we learn in the field of ecology. I just recently read an article on what happens when the rainforests in the South American continent are depleted, the effect that has upon weather and upon vegetation and animal life and humankind elsewhere. Many people are speculating about this hole in the ozone layer, the, th the thinning of it, the bad air, the bad water that can come when people violate ecological principles. Everything is related to everything else, like the domino effect. We are highly interdependent beings. But we can only achieve interdependence 
if we first become independent to a very high degree, for the first 150 years in this country, almost the entire thrust and theme of the success literature was character. Characteristics of the person, basic habits such as industry, integrity, modesty, thoughtfulness, love, service, and so forth. Character, see? The last 50 years, the focus shifted to one that we might call the personality ethic to differentiate it from the character ethic. It's heavily imbued by technique, technologies, how to lubricate the processes of human interaction, influence people, mental technologies, PMA, positive mental attitude, and other ways of organizing our life, our responses, so as to be effective with other people without perhaps fundamentally dealing with our own character. These basic habits, these seven basic habits, help us to move from dependency through independency up into interdependency. And the first three habits are basically character habits. The next three habits are what you might call personality habits, the outward expression of this independent character. I'm not against the concept of the personality ethic. I'm in favor of it, as long as it is a natural, congruent outgrowth of character. But if, like an iceberg, the tip of it, being personality, is separated from, truncated from, the great mass of the iceberg underneath the water, what happens is people begin to develop a life pattern of habits that are manipulative and often deceptive. They work with hidden agendas and they're in heavy into techniques and quick fix ideas. Ways of getting what they want now. The character ethic contains the basic principles of effective living. You can only experience true success and enduring happiness if you learn and integrate these principles into your basic character. Up to this point, we've been laying a foundation to help you more fully understand the seven habits of highly effective people. Now it's time to explain the habits themselves. The first habit is proactivity. Be proactive. It means more than merely taking initiative. It means that as a human being, you take responsibility for your own life. Look at the word responsibility. Ability to choose your response. I suggest effective people are proactive. That is, they take responsibility. Their behavior is a product of their own decisions based on values rather than being a product of their conditions based on feelings. For instance, you're planning a picnic with your family. 
you're excited, you have all the preparations, you've decided where to go, and it becomes stormy, killing your plan. Proactive people carry weather within them. They realize what their purpose really was, and they creatively have a picnic elsewhere, even if it's in their own basement with some special games, and make the best of that situation. The opposite of being proactive is to be reactive. Reactive people would say, what's the use? We can't do anything. Oh, this is so upsetting after all of our preparations. We'd made these arrangements. And the whole spirit of negativism will tend to pervade those people's minds and also the family. That's being reactive. So when you're proactive, you tend not to blame people and circumstances for what happens to you. This is very hard for many people to accept emotionally, especially if you've had years and years of blaming your misery on fate or someone else's behavior. But when people do become proactive, it can have dramatic consequences. One time in Sacramento, I was talking on this to a large group of people, and a lady stood up and literally became so excited she started talking to people, then grew embarrassed, sat back down, but talked privately. I could hardly wait for the break to find out what had happened. I went to her and... She said, you cannot believe what's happened to me. She says, I am the full-time nurse to the most miserable and grateful man you can possibly imagine. And for you to have the gall, the presumptiveness, to stand up there and to suggest, I am responsible? That I chose to be miserable? There's no way I could buy into that. But the more I thought about it, the more I swallowed that bitter pill, I came to realize, now wait a minute, if I have the power to choose... I could choose not to be miserable. I could choose not to be any more controlled by this guy that I'm the full-time nurse to who's made my life so miserable, who never even acknowledges me, let alone express appreciation. No longer am I going to, using my language now, empower his weaknesses to control me, to mess my life up. And she said, at that moment, I stood up. I was let out of San Quentin. I was let out of prison. I wanted to proclaim my liberty. I wanted to proclaim my freedom. Being proactive is really just being true to your human nature. Your basic nature is to act and not be acted upon. That's true despite widely accepted theories of determinism used to explain human nature. Determinism says that you don't really choose anything that what you call choices are nothing more than automatic responses to outside conditions or stimuli. There are three types of determinism. First, it's called genetic determinism. That means your grandparents did it to you. That's why you have a short fuse. Because your parents had one and they learned it from their parents. And besides that, you're Irish. And that's the nature of Irish people. Yeah, I have a short fuse. Everyone in my family just seems to go through the generations. The second is called psychic determinism. That means your parents did it to you. You're not good in the morning, right? Neither were your parents. Or you're a compulsive punctual. You're just literally guilt-tripped right out of your gourd if you're late. Because you can remember deep inside the emotional scripting when you were very vulnerable and tender and dependent. The punishment that came, the rejection, the comparison with somebody else when you were late.
to school or to some appointment or something of this nature. That's called psychic determinism. The third is called environmental determinism. That means that it is your boss that's doing it to you. It's your spouse. It's that bratty teenager. That's what's messing up your home life. Or it's the economics of your life. That's what's doing it to you. That's why you're so unhappy and miserable. Or because of national policies or the absence of certain programs or whatever. The language of reactive people, of people who are determined by their environment or by their conditions or by their conditioning or their genetic makeup is I can't do it. That's my nature. Can't. Don't have time. I have to. I have to. I must. See, the whole spirit of that language is the transfer responsibility. I am not responsible, able to choose my response. The spirit is, I am not responsible. Psychologically, isn't that easier to say than I'm a flake and irresponsible? The problem is, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. People who believe they are determined will produce the evidence to support the belief. And they increasingly feel victimized and out of control. They're not in charge of their life or their destiny at all. When you're proactive, you don't deny that genetics, upbringing, and environment make a difference. But you see them as influences only. A proactive person exercises free will, the freedom to choose the response that best applies to your values. In that way, you gain control of your circumstances rather than being controlled by them. One of my favorite books on this subject is called Man's Search for Meaning, written by an Austrian psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl, F-R-A-N-K-L. In it, he describes his autobiographical experiences in the death camps of Nazi Germany during World War II, where he was imprisoned as a Jewish political prisoner. It's hard to describe the depth of pain, torture, indignity that he experienced. I read many of his other books to get a deeper understanding of how he developed his theories of logotherapy. Logo means meaning. The concept is that if you have a why, you can live with any what, any how. As long as there's a purpose, a meaning, some value to be served or actualized. And that the highest value is how you deal with suffering, with difficult circumstances. That's where your greatest influence with others is. Frankel, one day, put under white light, stripped naked, while they began to perform these ignoble sterilization experiments upon his body, discovered what he called the last ultimate freedom. He had a personal vision of his proactive nature. I'm using my words, not his, but he called it the last ultimate freedom could not be taken from me. They could hurt my body, but they could not hurt me, who lives in this body. And through a series of disciplines, mental, emotional, moral, principally using memory and imagination, he exercised this small embryonic freedom until it grew larger and larger, until he had more freedom than his captors. That's what it means to be proactive. That's what it means to be in charge of your life, to emotionally accept this. Of course, you don't have to go through an extreme experience like Viktor Frankl to recognize and develop your own proactivity. 
You do it in ordinary, everyday events, like how you make and keep commitments, how you handle a traffic jam, how you respond to an irate customer, or how you handle a disobedient child. And you do it in how you view your problems, where you focus your energies, and what language you use. Remember, you are responsible for your own effectiveness and your own happiness. And that responsibility is fundamental to all of the other habits we will discuss. Habit number two, begin with the end in mind. That literally means to begin today with an image or picture of the end of your life as your frame of reference, as the criteria by which you examine everything else in your life. If you'd like to see what that's like, try this visualization exercise. I want you to think on this for a moment and get yourself into the frame of mind of attending a funeral of a dear one. In your mind's eye, see yourself driving to that funeral. Arriving, it's being held at a church, getting yourself situated in a back seat. And you come to a growing awareness that it is your funeral, that it is you in that casket three years from now. There are four speakers. The place is packed. And there's a great feeling of love, appreciation, and resonating value of this person, your life. The four speakers are these. One from your family, not just your nuclear family, but aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents have come from all around the country to attend. One from your friends that give a sense of what you were as a person, as a friend. One from your work, your profession, or outside activity. And one from your church, or some community organization where you've been involved in giving service. Now think, what would you like to have said three years from now about you? As a member of an intergenerational extended family, as a friend, as a working associate, or a public servant, what would you like to have said about your character, about your contributions, and about your achievements? Think carefully on those roles and write the eulogies. If you participated seriously in this exercise, you touched for a moment some of your deep, fundamental values. You may have even found your definition of success. And maybe it's very different from the definition you thought you had in mind. This habit, to begin with the end in mind, means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. So what's habit two? Simply, begin with the end in mind. Decide what your own value system is. Write your own philosophy, your own mission statement, 
your own creed, your belief system, and get it written into your mind and into your heart through the use of imagination and your emotion. Don't tie yourself to your history. Tie yourself to your potential. And if you learn to imagine vividly enough and to also draw heavily upon the inner sense or conscience of what is right or wrong, you will come to detect the most fundamental principles that pertain to your life. And you can distill them in the form of a mission statement or a value system or a purpose statement, whatever you wish to call it. This is the essence of Habit 2. You might call Habit 2 the leadership habit. Habit 3 is called the management habit. Before we go on, let's define what we mean by leadership and management. Leadership deals with direction. Management deals with speed, coordination, logistics, in going in that direction. Have you ever climbed a ladder of success and got to the top rung and realized it was leaning against the wrong wall? If you want a clear understanding of the difference between management and leadership, imagine the scene. Someone going through the jungle with a machete, cutting the undergrowth, clearing it up. There are the producers down there. See, the workers. Here all the managers are, back here, sharpening the machetes for them, putting on muscle development classes for machete wielders, setting up working schedules for machete wielders, handling jurisdictional disputes between machete wielders. The leader climbs the tallest tree in the jungle, surveys the entire scene, studies the larger picture, and screams out, Wrong jungle! And all the managers shout back, Shut up! We're making progress! <laughs> we manage things. We lead people. However, management also is important. After we have decided what the right things are to do, we want to do them right. We must focus on efficiency. We must focus on the bottom line. But habit two focuses on leadership, on the top line. What is it we're fundamentally about? To make this point clearer, here's an example of the difference between leadership and management. It comes from Dr. Covey's extensive experience as a consultant to corporations. I remember talking on this one time up in Seattle at one of our year-long executive development programs, and I talked on the second time, on the twelfth time, the twelfth month, the president of an oil company came up to me and said, Stephen, when you pointed out the difference between leadership and management on the second month, I looked at myself as the president of this company and realized I've never done habit two, really. I've never been into leadership. I'm deep into management. I am buried by the details of day-to-day -day logistical management, or as one person puts it, the thick of thin things. So I decided to withdraw from management, get other people to do that, which is a necessary function, and get deep into leadership. It was so hard. 
I went through such withdrawal pains because I was taking the longer view, not dealing with a lot of the pressing, urgent matters that were right in front of me. I didn't receive the satisfaction of those small accomplishments while I dealt with the direction issues, the culture-building issues, the deep analysis of problems, the seizing of new opportunity issues. Others also went through withdrawal pains because they wanted my accessibility as I had been before. They wanted me to be available to them, to respond and to solve them on a day-to-day basis. They wanted me into management. But I persisted. I was absolutely convinced I needed to provide leadership. And I did. Today, this was about 11 months after the experience, the learning experience, he said, our whole business is different. We're more in alignment with our environment. We have doubled our sales and quadrupled our profits. I'm into leadership. As Dr. Covey mentioned before, the key to habit number two is developing and writing down a mission statement, a statement of what you want from your life and the values or principles on which you base your life. It can be a valuable tool for corporations, but it's also important for individuals or families or groups of any kind. Recently, our family reworked our mission statement as a family to reflect kind of the situation as it is now and to improve it, to strengthen it. And it was a meaningful experience. In fact, we're still in the process. I'm convinced that you should not do it rapidly. I encourage businesses to at least take six months to a year, maybe two years, to write a mission statement because the key is to have it written in people's hearts and minds and unless they're significantly involved, it will not take place. The key to commitment is involvement. No involvement, no commitment. Write it down, mark it, asterisk it, circle it. It is an absolute correct principle. Habit three, the management habit, is put first things first. This habit deals with many of the questions addressed in the field of time management. The real challenge is not actually to manage time, but to manage yourself, to gain control of time and events in your life by seeing how they relate to your mission. Two dimensions, importance and urgency, create categories of time demands. Now let's define these terms. Important means it attaches to habit two. Your mission, your roles and goals. That's what's important. It's habit two. You've decided what's important. You've decided the wall to lean your ladder against. You've decided the direction. That's important. Now what's urgent? Urgent is that which is pressing upon you. That which gives a sense of urgency. You must act upon it like a ringing phone. That phone that's ringing may just be a total waste of your time. It's not attached to your mission, your roles or goals at all but it wants to be answered. And you could get easily sidetracked and go into management of the wrong things in the right way. Putting first things first, habit three, helps you focus your priorities. 
It helps you pay attention to how you spend your time as you act on your priorities, day in, day out, moment by moment. Dr. Covey has come up with four divisions of time that are all combinations of the two words he's just defined, importance and urgency. To help you visualize these divisions, imagine a square on a piece of paper. Then, with your mind's eye, make a cross within the square, dividing it into four smaller squares. What you've just imagined is a time management matrix, and the four squares are called quadrants. We'll label the four quadrants this way. Quadrant 1 is urgent and important. Quadrant 2, not urgent and important. Quadrant 3, urgent and not important and Quadrant 4, not urgent and not important. Quadrant 1 is important and also urgent. We usually call those problems, crises, and they need to be attended to or you don't survive. Or if you've got an important meeting come up, that would be Quadrant 1. Because if you don't attend that meeting, you're going to have a major problem. What's Quadrant 2? It's important, but not urgent. That means it attaches to your mission, your roles and goals, but there isn't a sense of now about it. What's quadrant three? It's urgent, but not important. It's pressing, it's proximate, it's in front of you, it's that ringing phone, it's that unanswered mail. It's all of those other distracting things that are important to other people, maybe, but they don't really attach to your overall mission or the organization's overall mission. What's quadrant four? It's a combination of being not urgent and not important. A lot of time-wasting, pleasant things, extensive Monday morning quarterbacking, extensive television, unnecessary meetings, unprepared meetings, interruptions that can just consume the entire day where you're very busy all day long and at the end of the day feel like I accomplished nothing. Now what I'd like to ask you to do, if you would, is to think of one activity in your life, one activity, that if you did superbly well and consistently, that you absolutely are convinced it would produce marvelous results, the kinds of results you desire. Think of one activity. Think of one in your personal life, and then think of one in your work life, your public life, okay? Now just think for a moment. For instance, someone might say, if I were to spend deeper one-on-one -on -one time with my key associates at work and with my loved ones at home, I'm convinced that those kinds of deposits would make a big difference on the kinds of results I want. All right, now what quadrant is the thing you wrote in? There's only one quadrant. It's two. It's two. Notice the question. One activity you know, if you did it superbly well and consistently, that it would have marvelous results. Already you've said it's important, and you're also saying it's not urgent, or you'd be doing it. See, you do it superbly well and consistently. It's in quadrant two you'll find that every one of the seven habits of highly effective people is in quadrant two, important but not urgent.
And in business, Dr. Covey has found that Quadrant 2 is the key to management. Pareto, the great Italian philosopher in the field of efficiency, came up with what's called the 80-20 rule. 80% of the results flow from 20% of the activities. Those are all Quadrant 2 activities. All of them. What do you think happens to Quadrant 1 if you neglect Quadrant 2? If you neglect prevention, what's going to happen to problems? It's going to grow and grow until there's almost no other quadrants. It may consume your life. That's called management by crisis. And management by crisis just beats you up, burns you out, fatigues you, gets very, very large. What's going to happen to quadrant one if you attend to quadrant two? Gets smaller and smaller. You'll still have some of it. Things you hadn't anticipated at all. Constant changes in our environment will create some of that. But it'll be manageable. It'll be workable. But you'll always have the sense that you're working on prevention and seizing new opportunities. Now, where are you going to get the time and attention to get into quadrant two? That has to come from three and four. Quadrant four is totally worthless quadrant. Can you name one thing of any value or worth in quadrant four? Leisure. Is leisure important? Yes. Then it's quadrant two. There's nothing of worth or value in quadrant four. Quadrant three also is essentially without value except on the part of other people. So basically you get your time for quadrant two from three and four. Just keep doing it. Just keep stealing a little from quadrant three and quadrant four. Learn to say no pleasantly, smilingly, happily, but say no. Because in saying no to quadrants three and four, you're saying yes to quadrant two. And when you say yes to quadrant two, you make quadrant one increasingly small. And you're working on things that will matter most, not on things which matter least. Things which matter most, Goethe wrote, must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. However, the problem is, it takes certain capacities to work on quadrant two. What's the fundamental capacity? We've already talked about it. What is it? You have to be proactive. Why? Quadrant one works on you. Quadrant one acts on you. Quadrant two must be acted upon. We are made in our essential humanity to act and not be acted upon. That's quadrant two. All deep relationship building. Quadrant two. Planning and organizing. Quadrant two. Personal preparation. Quadrant two. Exercise, quadrant two. Reading, broad, deep reading. Continual education, quadrant two. Quadrant two is the key. Remember, learning how to emphasize quadrant two activities in your life is part of habit number three, putting first things first. It's reorganizing your life around the goals of your mission statement and then having the discipline to live your life accordingly. Before we go on to Habits 4 through 7, let's review for a moment. Habit 1 is the habit of personal vision. Be proactive. Habit number 2 is the habit of personal leadership. Begin with the end in mind. Habit number 3 is the habit of personal management. Put first things first. 
These three habits allow you to achieve self-mastery and self-discipline. In short, to become independent. Habits 4, 5, and 6 lead to interdependent relationships. Before we look at each habit individually, let's see how they connect. Habit 4, Think Win-Win, is the attitude of seeking solutions so that everyone can win. How do you do that? You communicate. That's Habit 5. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Habit 6 is the habit of creative cooperation. It's called synergy. Synergy happens when two sides in a dispute work together to come up with a solution better than either side first proposed. Now, Dr. Covey is going to talk about habits 4, 5, and 6 together, and then we'll go into each one more specifically. Let's say that I'm communicating with a key person in my life. It may be my boss, it may be a key subordinate in a work setting. It may be my spouse or a child in a home setting. It may be a neighbor. We're talking about an issue that is important to us, even jugular. And we are approaching it differently. We see it differently. Watch the three habits, four, five, and six. First, think win-win. Say to the person something like this. Why don't we agree to communicate until we can find a solution we both feel good about? Would you be willing to do that? In almost all cases, people will say yes to you. Now watch habit five. Let me listen to you first. Most people do the very opposite. They want to first be understood. And when both parties want to be understood simultaneously, that's called the collective monologue, the dialogue of the deaf. They're not really listening. They're either speaking or preparing their speech. So the fifth habit is communicate, first by listening, then expressing. Now, what's habit six? That's where you're very creative and you think through new and better ways, new and better solutions. For instance, let's say that I want to go on a vacation out into the lake country and you want to go on a vacation closer to your ailing mother. That's important to you. The other is important to me. I've looked forward to it. I'm a fisherman at heart. The boys are excited about it. But your mother is ailing, and you don't have an opportunity to see her very much. And that's important to you. Now, if I'm deep into authoritarianism, I might say, I don't really care what you think that much. When I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. We are going fishing. <laughs> or I'll beat it out of you. <laughs> or if I'm into martyrdom, I might say, well, have your way with me. <laughs> it's the way it always is. I always lose. In the former case, I'm into win-lose. In the latter case, I'm into lose-win. Or we could apply habits four, five, and six, assuming we have an abundance mentality and enough internal security to carry on this communication and say, let's agree to communicate until we can find a solution we both feel good about. Would you be willing? All right, let's do it. Let me listen to you first. I understand that visiting with your mother is so important because you haven't seen her for this, and here's your situation, and you can relieve your sister who's been taking care of her, 
and you keep expressing till the other person feels deeply understood. But you know what we've been doing with these boys and how much time and effort we've been given into these lessons and they want to get into this fly fishing and it's just a perfect situation. And then I am understood. I am empathized too. And the spirit of mutual understanding creates such an affirmation, such a respect for each other. We're not going to go for win-lose or lose-win. Nor are we going to compromise. We create new options, new alternatives in our minds. We find a lake near the mother. Maybe it's not as good as the lake we had prepared, but I feel much better about it because I respect my, my wife and I love her and I love her mother and want to attend to that important need in a way that would also meet my boys need to have an expression of their fishing opportunity. It's a win-win solution. Is it compromise? No. It's a better solution. I am convinced that almost without an exception, if people practice four, five, and six, they can take almost any difference and produce a third alternative better than either of the other two. I've done it too many times in negotiating proceedings, in team building, in legal battles and warfares, even with marriages that are broken. Get deep into habits four, five, and six, listening, communicating with respect. Then use your creative capacities to produce options or alternatives that would have win-win benefits in them. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes habits one, two, and three. It takes character strength. It takes the internal security that comes from being true to your own value system. Now let's go a little deeper into habits four, five, and six. Habit number four, think win-win. It's not just some cute phrase or cosmetic idea. It's a total philosophy of human interaction in which you look for solutions that allow everyone to win. It's an idea that appeals to many people, especially in the business world. But you may be wondering, is it really realistic? Many people say, well, you know, Stephen, I like this win-win idea. In fact, I had a man say that to me. He was the president of a large chain of retail stores. He said, Stephen, I like the win-win idea, but it's idealistic. It's idealistic. I'll bet a lot of you are kind of feeling like that. Tough, competitive business world isn't quite like that. He said that. I said, really? Try going for win-lose with your customer. Is that realistic? He said, well, no. Why not? I'd lose my customer. Then go for lose-win with your customer. Give away the store. Is that realistic? No. No margin, no mission. The only one, the only one that is realistic is win-win. He said, I better tell you my experience. That's true with customers, but not suppliers. <laughs> I said, all you are is the customer of the supplier. Why doesn't the same principle hold? Where right now, he said, in the middle of renegotiating our lease arrangements with the mall operators and owners, you as our consultant counseled us to go for win-win. We did. We're open, reasonable, conciliatory, have a win-win attitude. 
They see that attitude as weakness and softness, and they took us to the cleaners. Immediately I shot back, why'd you go for lose-win? We didn't. We went for win-win. I thought you said they took you to the cleaners. They did. In other words, you lost. Yeah. And they won. That's right. What's that called? <laughs> what he thought was win-win was really what? Lose-win. Being nice. Being nice guy. Nice guys finish last. Win-win is much tougher than win-lose. Far more rigorous than authoritarian behavior. Why? Because you have to not only be nice, you have to be courageous. You not only have to be empathic, you have to be confident. You not only have to be considerate and sensitive, you have to be brave. It's the balance between courage and consideration. The balance between self-respect and respect for others. That is the essence of the fruit of Habits 1, 2, and 3, which enable you to practice the fruits of Habits 4, 5, and 6. I hope you're beginning to sense the sequential nature of how these habits are organized and are inwardly becoming persuaded that you need to do the character work before you work on techniques and personality. You simply cannot harvest the crop if you have not planted in the spring, watered, weeded, and cultivated during the summer, there is no quick fix. When you emotionally accept that, you stop looking for them. And if you have a strong sense of mission and sense of values, you go to work. As good as win-win sounds, you still may be wondering, what do I do when it appears as if I can't work out a win-win deal? Well, there is an alternative to win-win that may even be superior. The alternative is called win-win or no deal. Sometimes you go for no deal. We agree to disagree agreeably. I'll tell you the marvelous thing about the no deal option. You'll stop manipulating. Let's say you want something very bad in your business or in your family life. You want it real bad, okay? And it involves other people's cooperation. Just try it. Say to them, if we cannot work out this win-win deal, Let's agree to disagree agreeably. Let's go for no deal. It's better. Then I don't have to have hidden agendas. I don't have to manipulate you. I can be very open. I can try to understand the deeper issues underlying your positions. I don't have to get into positional bargaining where we fight from each other's positions and we're each talking to our own constituencies. We can avoid that whole scenario. Remember, win-win is not a personality technique. It's a total paradigm of human interaction. It comes from having a character of integrity and maturity, and from having the abundance mentality, the belief that there's enough to go around for everyone. And you achieve it through a process begun in Habit 4 that continues in Habits 5 and 6. Habit number five summarizes in one sentence the single most important principle Dr. Covey has learned in the field of interpersonal relations. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. If you want to interact effectively with someone, to influence them, whether your spouse, your child, your neighbor, your boss, your co-worker, your friend, you first need to understand them. 
And for many people, seeking first to understand involves a very deep paradigm shift, because what most of us want is to be understood, and that means we don't know how to listen. The deepest hunger of the human soul is to be understood. Once a person feels understood, they relax. Defenses are lowered. They become open. That's why habit five is the key. You've got to get deep into their head, empathic, where you understand how they see it, how they feel about it. And they feel that you do. That's habit five. That takes energy, tremendous energy. So much harder to listen in that kind of depth, with that kind of empathy, than it is to speak. See, the natural tendency in most people is to prescribe out of their own autobiographies. Let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you how I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I had one father say to me, you know, I can't understand my kid. He won't listen to me at all. Let me restate what I heard you saying. You don't understand your boy because he won't listen to you. That's right. Let me restate it again. You don't understand your son because he won't listen to you. That's right. What's your point, Stephen? Well, I thought to understand another, you needed to listen to them. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I, I already understand him. I mean, I've gone through it. I could tell you the things. No, that's your autobiography. Do you listen from within the frame of reference of another? That takes not only skill, but emotional strength, which comes out of habits one, two, and three. That's why most people cannot listen in depth. What are you risking if you deeply listen to another? You might be changed. And unless there is a changeless core about you, that is your integrity to your own changeless value system, you can't afford that risk. You don't know what's going to happen. People who act as if they don't care about other people's opinions care too much what other people think. That's why they're defending themselves against listening. Why? They're too vulnerable. They could be wiped out. What if they didn't like me? Where would I go and hide then? What would I do then? The real strength of the ability to practice habit five comes out of the first three habits. Dr. Covey has taught many people the skill of empathic listening and seen dramatic results. I was back in Chicago, and it was a two-day seminar on the fifth habit. I said, practice is at night. One guy came in the next morning and said, let me tell you what happened last night. I was in the hotel room. We were trying to cinch this real estate deal, a big institutional real estate deal. And the participants, the principals were there, their attorneys were there, and for the first time, another real estate guy was there. And it looked as if I was going to lose the deal. And I've been working on this now for many months, over six months. I've had no other income. In a sense, all of my eggs were in this one bushel. All of them. This one basket. And I didn't know. I was panicked. And I did everything I could to pull out the stops, to use every technique I could. And then I said to myself, I'm going to lose this deal. Why not practice what I learned today? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. So I stopped all of my techniques and manipulations and just said to the man, let me see if I can understand what your position is fully until you feel like I understand it. And then we'll see whether my proposal has any relevance or not. 
And he said to the man, I really want to understand. I sent your concerns are these. And the man opened up a little. Furthermore, I sense that you worry about this and that if you don't go in this direction, these kinds of things will result. Do I understand? More was opened up. More empathy expressed. Until that person, in the middle of our conversation, said, excuse me a minute, stood up, walked to the other side of the room, picked up a phone, called his wife, turned around, and with his hand over the mouthpiece, said, you've got the deal. He said, I was totally dumbfounded. I had no idea what had happened. I explained the dynamic is that if you meet the human need to be understood, you're also meeting the need to be appreciated. And people feel validated. They feel affirmed as a human being. And when it came right down to it, those human deposits were more important than the technical dimensions to the deal. Habit number six, synergize, is the habit of creative cooperation. As Dr. Covey has already explained, synergy happens when two people in a dispute use their creative capacities to come up with a solution better than either person came up with alone. And as you can probably see now, synergy is built directly on habit four, think win-win, and on habit five, seek first to understand and then to be understood in which you listen and communicate with respect for the other person. And one more thing worth repeating about synergy. It's not the same as compromise. Compromise means one plus one equals one and a half. Synergy means one plus one equals three, four, or five. Most industrial disputes end up in compromise. Most Legal suits end up in compromise on the courthouse steps. But the real essence of synergy is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. As one put it, I want that window closed. I want it open, closed, open, closed, open. Look at the ego battle around that issue. People can invest their ego into their position, see? The key is to practice habits for five and six. Why don't we communicate till we can find a solution we both feel good about? Habit five, let me listen to you first. Why is it you want that window closed? Well, the the draft blows my papers about. Then to be understood, why is it you want it open? I like the fresh air. I get a kind of claustrophobic feeling without it. Habit six, synergize. What could we do to give the fresh air without the draft? We could open the window in the next room. It's a better solution. It's not a compromise solution. I think it's better, even though I wanted that window open, because I care about you. And the human relationship is certainly as important, if not more important, than the physical environment. The key point of Habit 6, Synergize, is that when people communicate with respect and creativity, they learn, gain insight, and can then produce solutions to problems and issues better than any originally proposed. 
In a way, synergy is the crowning achievement of all the previous habits. And it works, whether in a family or an organization. The final habit, number seven, is the habit of self-renewal. It's the self-maintenance habit. It's the habit that if you do it right and do it completely and do it regularly, you will automatically develop the other six. It's called sharpening the saw. And here is a little story to illustrate why. Just envision in your mind coming across someone who's sawing down a tree, really going at it vigorously. And you come up and you say, what have you been doing? Can't you see I'm sawing? I know, but how long? Oh, I don't know. I've been at this for hours. I'll bet you're tired. Oh, you can't believe. Well, why don't you sharpen the saw? I'm too, too busy sawing, dum-dum. <laughs> That's the seventh habit. Take time to sharpen the saw. Sharpen the saw regularly. You ever been too busy driving to take time to get gas? So sharpening the saw is preserving and enhancing the greatest asset you have, you. It's continual daily self-renewal of the four dimensions of your nature, your physical self, your mental self, your spiritual self, and your social-emotional self. To sharpen the saw means, basically, to exercise all four dimensions and to organize your life so that you have time in quadrant two to do that. One hour a day, minimum, will I believe maintain these other six habits. To really get good at those six habits, it takes more than that. What does this involve? Physical exercise. The best kind is stretching and aerobics and a little muscle toning, kind of a combination of the three. Aerobics is the kind of exercise that deals with the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, which enlarges the capacity of the body to process oxygen. And that's the key to energy, oxygen, as well as interest. Stretching should precede or follow briefly the aerobics. Muscle toning, like calisthenics or weights or things of this nature, also are helpful. And if people can cultivate a habit of at least 30 minutes every other day, they can maintain. To really enlarge the capacity of the body to work, they may have to do just a little more. But as they do even a half an hour, their body becomes more efficient, their heart muscles stronger, more oxygen is pumped through the body, and they have more vitality, more energy inside. So I commend to you to make your mind up. If you do not now have a good exercise program, to start one. A little stretching, then go on a vigorous walk, or a jog, or a bike, or a swim, but a good vigorous walk for, say, 20 minutes, and then a little stretching at the end, and a few calisthenics, and you've got a minimum physical exercise program. What if you only spent three hours in a week? of a week that's made up of 168 hours, is that disproportionate with the only instrument you've got? I think it's better to try to give about an hour a day every other day. But at least give a half an hour every other day, or four days a week.
with regard to spiritual exercise, that involves habit number two. That's where you renew your commitment to your well-developed value system. You do it in a way that is congruent with your own philosophy. It's done differently. Some people read important literature, even sacred literature. Other people meditate, pray, think deeply about key fundamental issues. This kind of, we could call, spiritual activity is providing leadership, habit two. Then the mental planning and doing in staying with that leadership is habit three. So you visualize and plan your roles and goals for that week and then review it for each day to make sure that your life is in harmony with your mission and your overall long-term roles and goals. That's the mental habit, the mental creation, habit two and three. The spiritual creation is habit two. The mental creation is part of habit two because you're still planning and thinking, but it's also having the mental toughness to stay with it in habit three when perhaps there are distractions and temptations that would lead you to capitulate and to give in to lesser important items, items of low priority. The social-emotional sharpening the saw embrace habits four, five, and six so that you say to yourself, I'm going to approach this relationship with a win-win attitude. I'm going to seek first to understand. Then I also want to be understood. But I will not seek to be understood until the other feels like I understand. And then I'm going to get into creative problem-solving with that person. Synergize to see if we can come up with better solutions than what originally we proposed to each other. Come up with a better psychological agreement. Those are the four basic dimensions of the human personality that basically express and develop all of the other habits. If it's well done in a balanced and regular way, it will do exactly that. One story and a final quote to conclude. It was a dark and stormy night. The officer on the bridge came to the captain and said, Captain, Captain, there is a light in our sea lane and they won't move. What do you mean they won't move? Tell them to move. Tell them starboard right now. The signal is sent out. Starboard, starboard. The signal comes back. Starboard yourself. I can't believe this. What's going on here? Let them know who I am. The signal sent out, This is the mighty Missouri. Starboard. The signal comes back, This is the lighthouse. <laughs> My friends, correct principles are lighthouses. They do not move. They are natural laws. We cannot break them. We can only break ourselves against them. We might as well learn them, accommodate them, utilize them, and be grateful for them. Then it enlarges us and emancipates us. 
and empowers us. T.S. Eliot once said something I think is appropriate as we come to the conclusion of our visit together. He said, We shall never cease from striving, and the end of all of our striving will be to arrive where we began and to know the place for the first time. I suggest all we have covered we inwardly already know. These are self-evident principles, perhaps not yet habits. We already know them, but what is common sense is not common practice. Let's learn them, relearn them, listen over and over again until it becomes part of the software of our heads. Then teach other people, socially commit, and then begin to live them. And we ourselves will become lighthouses for other people's lives. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a presentation by Dr. Stephen R. Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Restoring the Character Ethic. The scriptwriter was Lou Giansante. The recording engineer was Jerry LaRosa. The mix engineer was Karen Perlman. The associate producer was Elisa Shokoff. And I'm Janet Zarish. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Restoring the Character Ethic, was produced and directed by Susan Perrin. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio.